Marini's Media. Totally Football Show today. Liverpool, there's no stopping them at Tottenham as world champs take a 14 points lead and Queen offers sympathy after Tottenham's son lets them down with his miss. Elsewhere, with Leicester embarrassed Saints again, this time Hasenhuttle says nine, City drill Villa and Watford move out of the bottom three for the first time this season. Like Prince Albert, they've not been the same since that Pearson appointment. These hot topics and more on the way in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Bauer. And good morning to you, listener. Joining us on this Monday morning is Sasha Gurionov. Good morning, James. Good morning to you, Sasha. Uh, Raphael Honigstein's here good with morning, us. Good morning, my lieber James. <laughs> no idea what you just said, but it sounded nice. And also in from Transfer Talk on Sky Sport News, Anton Tuluy. Good morning. With your ear on the ground and your arm in a sling. And my arm in a sling, yes. Anton, why? Oh. Um, Were you out getting transfer talk? <laughs> yes, and you got no. Um, I uh, overextended myself in yoga and did some damage to muscles in my in my uh, shoulder and uh, and back and feel old. I just feel old now. Wow. This is what happens, isn't it? <laughs> so they say. Anyway, all right. Well, uh, plenty of people uh, feeling a bit creaky, I suspect, after the weekend's action in the Premier League. Let's just quickly check on the Monday morning headlines. First off, Liverpool. 20 victories out of 21 games this season. Uh, they are now 14 points clear, but what could have been at that match at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? Aguero has become the top-scoring foreign player in Premier League history and the man with the most hat-tricks in the division's entire existence. And Watford have moved up into 17th place out of the bottom three for the first time since the start of the season. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Let's start with events in North London. Sasha, you went, in the company of Dimitar Berbatov, to see Liverpool's visit to Spurs. Yeah, so we spoke to him before the game. He was lovely, very chatty, very presentable, very personable, um, and quite imposing. Uh, but he yeah. didn't like the fact that that was almost as tall as him. Apparently, he also didn't like the fact that he was asked for his meal ticket by the dinner lady at the press room. According to Twitter reports, he then proceeded to stuff a sandwich into his mouth and said, what are you going to do about it? Really? And there was nothing they could. Because that's how he rolls. That's a crouchy this having is, his nachos. Oh. Yeah, this is Alistair Gold, who's uh, pretty clued up when it comes to Spurs. So, And I, it also rings true because uh, Spurs and Arsenal are very officious about their um, you know, meal vouchers. Okay. Yeah, really Good check. to know. We didn't give enough credit to the bread-based pun there from Sasha, by the way. Can we just right, say, no, yeah, I, I talked all over it. Yeah. Sasha again. Because that's how he rolls. That's how he rolls. There you go. I think <laughs> other people making a meal of it included Los Celso and Sun with the two gilt-edged opportunities uh, that Liverpool afforded them later on in the game. But let's just talk about this match. The, the, the overriding fact is that Liverpool have now set off with the best ever start to a top-flight season from anyone ever. Is that right, Sasha? Well, apart from Azad, Alkmaar and Celtic. OK. But if you're talking top leagues, yes. Because, uh, I mean, for example, only two years ago you saw... I think City won 19 after, out of the first 21 games. Uh, like 10 years earlier, Chelsea won 19 out of 21 games and everyone thought, oh, this is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Never going to be bettered. And here are Liverpool winning their 12th game on the bounce, uh, having only drawn one game the entire season. Right. Uh, but yet again, they come through quite a difficult assignment. Because um, I thought Kane's absence actually made the, the whole game more interesting because of Spurs' approach and you know no one could really guess how they're going to do it. 
But I, I, I suppose well, they did kind of made sense given that Jose Mourinho just gave the ball to Liverpool. Right. Well, the Spurs' tactics, as you say, they kind of renounced possession, particularly the, the first half. First half, our Liverpool had over 75% first half. of possession. Do you agree with uh, Jose that the fact that they had those late chances vindicated his approach? Or do you perhaps second uh, Daniel's story when he says that the second half from Tottenham damns their first half approach? You had to pressure them earlier. Well, Mourinho, I think, would contend that uh, the team are not able to do that, that physically they're not quite able to do that, that perhaps tactically you don't want to open up too early. Um, the problem with this approach is that if you play results football without the result, then what's left? Not a lot. I think that because it's Liverpool, because they've beaten everyone, you can probably get away with that kind of performance, but it doesn't strike me as a particularly attractive and, and viable option going forward. I, indeed, there is... There is a theory that part of the reasons why Mourinho's teams haven't really clicked uh, as well in recent years is that his idea of being a little bit passive, at least in the bigger games, uh, no longer really cuts it in a league where teams don't necessarily make these mistakes in the build-up and don't necessarily you know, give the ball away in, in difficult areas. Although Liverpool on this occasion did in a couple of times and could have been punished. Right. But I'm just not convinced. I'm also not convinced that players want to play that way you know if you are at Spurs if you feel that this is the right place to stay because you want to further your career you want to win stuff you want to be one of the stars and then your coach asks you to play without the ball for large spells I don't think it's a sustainable way of of doing things and uh, I think there's an inherent conflict uh, that might might come to the surface. I, I think it's fascinating because I completely agree with Rafa, which is when you look at what Maurizio Pochettino did at Tottenham, there was always an eye on what the long-term project was. And obviously they were coming towards the end of one cycle and it was whether he was going to go through with another one. You know, Daniel Levy's effectively shook hands with the tactical devil, ultimate pragmatism, short-termism. Are they going to have to go big and just get rid of some players and bring in others in the next two windows and go again? Or, or are we just going to see you know a sort of almost... A lack of identity, like we saw with Manchester United towards the end. It's going to be fascinating the next the next four. What, five what's months, your prediction for January from Spurs' point of view on the transfer market? Well, I mean, they're, they're they're close to signing Gedson Fernandez from Benfica on loan, who's uh-huh. a sort of deep lying um, playmaker. But I mean, you look at that team; they need a striker. Quite obviously, we saw you know with the chances at the end of that game and with Harry Kane gone, that's that's their priority. But they wouldn't have been necessarily planning for that going into January. No. I think they would have been quite happy just relying on Harry Kane and then more or Son being a backup. Right. Um, and I think it being Jason Mourinho, he's always got an eye on another holding midfielder and he's always got an eye on another centre-back as well. Right. But Tottenham don't want to go through windows where they sign four or five players. Right. And for me, that that's where it seems like a conflict and it seems like the, the manager and the way the clubs run, don't the two don't seem to marry for me at okay. the moment. Er- Ericsson, is he on his way in, so in January? Or? The problem is with Christian Ericsson, there's only really one club who wants to talk to him at the moment and that's Inter Milan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he has... Is he not old son. enough, do you think? <laughs> I think he has sight site set on other clubs uh, potentially oh. but um, Inter are you know an increasingly attractive prospect aren't they indeed uh, so yeah I think it'd be fascinating to see what happens it's at Tottenham. hard to see why he would play in an in a, in a Inter team with two strikers and a functional midfield as as his contest I see him what? in the Wesley Snyder role yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe he won't come till the summer anyway. Sasha. But since we're talking about Ericsson and identity and what was identity before, I mean, I think anyone who saw Ericsson's interview after Spurs beat Ajax towards the end of last season, 
could tell that. I don't think I, uh, Ericsson was very happy with the identity of Spurs at the time because as the players were falling around him, celebrating and nearly all crying, Ericsson was standing there going, well. It says it well. I mean, it was a ridiculous game in general. We were really far down and we tried to fight back and then at the end we were just lucky. I mean, I feel sorry for Ajax. They played a very good game against us. They, uh, I think over the two games they played better football than us. You could tell from his body language that, that he didn't really think his team was any good anymore. So that project has basically hit the skids already at that stage. So from Levy's point of view, you know, maybe you try to tie yourself over for a season with Mourinho. Uh, on the other hand, look, if the results don't pick up and the whole club just falls back into Onui, I mean, do you really need to keep Mourinho for any reason? But there is also the difficulty. Um, I mean, you, you could see obviously the problem with the absence of the striker, uh, but this, this whole thing about signing a backup who would then happy to be a backup, as it turns out, is quite a difficult concept in football. And uh, actually, Berbatov before the game said this is one of the great things with Liverpool that Klopp managed to do because he has his hierarchy of three top strikers and the other guys like Origi are happy to be, well, maybe not completely happy, but they are there coming in when needed and they're not going to kick up a massive fuss about it. I mean, the, the challenge thing for anybody that Tottenham want to sign is, right, you've got three months, go and prove you're as good or you're as, as effective as Harry Kane. And then, you know, we can either we'll change the way we play or we'll have to rotate the team, which is what they haven't done with Harry Kane, which is why he gets injured every season. Right. So, yeah, arguably, I mean, this isn't really Mourinho's problem. It's been there for three, two, three years. As for Klopp and all his records and that, Rafa, how, how is that all being received back in Germany? Well, with, with a degree of satisfaction and I think in pride that, you know, one of Germany's exports is, is doing well, is, is probably on the verge of, of, sort of breaking the curse and doing what hasn't been done in Liverpool for 30 years although he won't won't hear about it but yeah I mean he has gone from being a icon at Dortmund and at Mainz to being sort of a a kind of national treasure figure Uh, the fact that he's doing it at Liverpool a club that has um, quite a historic I wouldn't say following but certainly a a base of people who who like the club who look at the club going back to the 70s and 80s uh, just increases um, yeah increases the exposure and the appeal and think he is close to sort of being canonized and uh, ascending to the uh, pantheon of sort of German football greats. And why wouldn't he? I mean, I don't think it was possible to do what Liverpool did last year. I didn't think it was necessarily possible to do what they're doing this right. year. I'm not quite sure how they've got this consistency. It, it, somehow they do. Is it because they won the European Cup? They they won the Champions League. Is that what did it? That winning that meant that when they started this season, they were just okay. We're now European champions. Is that why they've been going out and been saying outrageously good? The, the thing is, like looking through the history of Liverpool and the Klopp, it's almost the thing that makes them outrageously good is great failure. You had a great disaster in Kiev. Um, and they bounced back from it by winning the European Cup mm. and then finishing second in the league, which was actually really disappointing in, in some sort of ways. So this year, they've gone out and they're going to win the league and they're probably going to go for the European Cup again. So kind of doubling up on all the efforts they had before. All right. Um, They'll I, probably I, go for the FA Cup as well, although they might have one or two obstacles in their way. Either Bristol City or, Sh- or your Shrewsbury, or Shrewsbury Town. Or the mighty Shrewsbury Town, yeah. Right. At, uh, at uh, the Montgomery Waters Meadow, if they uh, all things go well this week. All right, because you've got a replay coming up with Bristol with City. Bristol City, yeah, on Tuesday night. Right. We'll talk more maybe about Shrewsbury's chances. Of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, just to answer your question, I think the the big important sort of junction was actually the Barcelona semi-final. Right. I think after they won that, then it was almost a given, at least in their mind, that they were going to win the European Cup, uh, that nothing could phase them. And I think since then, it's been sort of just one relentless... Um, push forward where 
they seem to be able just to deal with bad things happening. I mean, they go through bad spells in games, they concede chances, they pick up injuries with key players. You know, two months ago, we would have said without Fabinho, they're going to be really struggling. Um, hasn't been a factor when Salah has been out and hasn't really been at the best. They've been able to replace him. They won the Barcelona game without Firmino and Salah. They just managed this ability to just uh, kind of roll with the punches and, and, and keep going even though they get they get these knocks. And City, for all their brilliance, just have been just a little more fragile. All right. Although they're back on one of their runs now. What is it? Nine wins in the last... 10 and, and, and more than three goals a game, their average throughout those those matches. We'll be talking more about City very shortly. Sasha, just to wrap up on on Liverpool, you, you did a lovely piece for totallyfootballshow.com about how matches against Spurs form a neat kind of set of marking points, almost a waypoints in, in the progress of Liverpool. Jurgen Klopp's first game was at Spurs and I think ever since that point, they kind of, it's like sort of marker stones in Liverpool's progress because I think when Klopp arrived, you know, Spurs were the target that Liverpool needed to catch and overtake. And I think within a couple of years, they were showing signs that they are able to do so. And what's happened, and I think it's also, again, great failures and how Liverpool react to them. The 4-1 defeat at Tottenham Hotspur on 22nd of October 2017 highlighted a number of issues that had to be solved. And since that game, Liverpool lost four games in the league. I think Spurs lost like 27 or something. Wow. Because, again, it's a very mature reaction to, to failure and how, how to fix it. And I think a lot of what Liverpool do, I don't know wh- wh- where it comes from, because obviously Klopp has quite a magnificent mentality in terms of being able to just block certain things out and not dwell on them, which I don't think Guardiola has. But his players are like that as well. And, you know, even yesterday I was sort of trying to sort of needle Van Dijk and ask him about a couple of times that Liverpool got caught on the ball. And he was like, so what? I mean, we won the game. Yeah, we'll look at it afterwards. And you could see he literally does not care that these things happen because they will discuss in the team meeting afterwards and move on. A 14-point lead will do that for you. Well, next up for Spurs, they're taking on Middlesbrough again after that draw in the third round of the FA Cup. Jonathan Woodgate and Robbie Keane returning to their alma mater. That's on Tuesday. Other replays, Shrewsbury, is Tuesday, is it for you, Anton? Tuesday, yep, Tuesday night. Against Bristol City with a clash with Liverpool as a prize. It is. I mean, unfortunately, Shrewsbury do not play very good football. So Do they not? No, it's very defensive. So, okay. Yeah, it won't be the glamour tie, I think, that many would uh, hope for if it ended up being at the Meadow. Oh, that'd be mind. fascinating. It would be. It would be. It'd be, it'd be a, lovely, a lovely occasion, wouldn't okay. it? Okay. Uh, Tranmere up against Watford. You remember Tranmere rule back from 3-0 down to uh, draw 3-3 at Vicarage Road and Newcastle are taking on Rochdale on Wednesday then it's Man United Wolves which we'll touch on a bit later after this we're going to talk Man City boom everyone remembers that time you've had that peach of an accumulator looking good only for oh and the keepers let it slip through his legs in the 94th minute or the right back has to pull on the gloves and face a penalty or Man United have again conceded a late equaliser but with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, you get a free bet if one leg of your fourfold plus Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Minimum odds of 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeCumbleAware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Manchester City back into second place after their 6-1 defeat of Aston Villa. Sunday afternoon. Uh, this was uh, quite a one-sided affair. Uncle Tupelo tweeting, people are actually leaving Villa Park after 27 minutes. When is it acceptable to leave? When's the earliest you've ever left a game, Rafa? Uh, probably 20 minutes before the game ends. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah fair. But you can, can you understand that, I mean, Villa fans could see the writing on the wall uh, and on the scoreboard as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you play against City, where you probably go into the game thinking this would be very, very difficult, and then you find yourself 4 nil down, and you're thinking, why should I mm. well, you, subject you could, myself to this torture? Because you could witness some of the outstanding moments of the, of, of the weekend, uh, some of the finest bits of play, perhaps... You know, up there, the best bits of the season. I know, but it's not much fun if you're in the receiving end, James. Perhaps, perhaps. What was your favourite I know bit? you've been to boarding school and all that stuff, but <laughs> some people don't enjoy that kind of pain. I see. Um, <laughs> what was your favourite bit, Anton? Um, sorry, I've got to talk about football now, haven't I? Yeah. Um, that beautiful Kevin De Bruyne sort of crossfield ball for Jesus at the back post to, to hammer home. It was, that's just Kevin, it's just Kevin De Bruyne. Extraordinary. He's just wonderful. He is just majestic and... You just can't stop him. He just made Danny Drinkwater look daft in the game, didn't he? Just so, oh, it wasn't difficult. Okay. But he was fantastic. Again. Danny Drinkwater was making his debut for Villa here. And that was my most enjoyable thing about it because he had no idea what was going on. Well, yeah, a lot of people commenting on Danny Drinkwater. Andrew Turner, was that the best debut in Premier League history from Drinkwater? Three assists in 25 minutes. Uh, Drinkwater puts on a plate for Murray's. It's like 2016 all over again, says Tom Williams. Anton Tolui, Danny Drinkwater, now has more Premier League assists for Man City this season than Raheem Sterling does. Is that true, Anton? Raheem Sterling has one Premier League assist this season. Aston Villa, who signed a huge amount of players in the summer, now very much back on the transfer market because they've had so many injuries. Danny Drinkwater, the first player to come in, he'd only played 59 minutes, I read, in the whole of 2019 and didn't look entirely ready for this game. I think he hadn't started a game in 22 months or something like Good that. Good Lord. What was so bad about his performance, somebody tell me? I don't think anything was that bad. But against City, as a midfield, if you don't have a very clear idea and, and, and press and really try to cut down the spaces and do it as a unit, it's very difficult. I don't think it's necessarily down to him that City dominated, that Villa couldn't really get much of the ball. Most teams have that issue, um, especially with Man City on the mood and pass it around and move... So he probably looked a little bit more rusty than he otherwise would have been. And Villa can probably say, you know what, we didn't necessarily sign him to get a result against City. There'll be other more winnable games and you have to start him at some stage. So I wouldn't really sort of kill him that early. I see. I think that's fair, but City just were able to walk the ball effectively into Aston Villa's penalty area. And Villa have changed to a back three now. They've, you know, they've been chopping and changing centre-backs all season. They've now settled on a, on a back three because they don't get the cover from the midfield and yet they're still so deep and it's still so easy to, to just put pressure on them. They just seem to collapse every time. It's a, it's a huge problem they've got. Yes, they've signed Drinkwater to try to try to deal with that and the fact that he can play the ball long to the pace they've got up front like he did at Leicester when they, when they won the title. But that might not be enough. Well, indeed, they've dropped into the bottom three. Only one point between them and the uh, two sides just on the other side of the dotted line, Watford and West Ham, uh, of whom more later. But Sergio Aguero now setting new records for the number of hat-tricks in the Premier League and also for the number of goals scored by a non-English player. Was it his second one where David Silva splits the, the Villa back line and then he does a kind of messiest tap dance around the remaining defenders and slots it away? Magnificent. Nice to see him getting a run out from Guardiola as well after Guardiola had gone with that strikerless formation against Man United and then came up with two, actually two of them this time. Well, maybe also a reflection on your position, but um, huh. yeah, I mean, we've become used to his brilliance. I mean, that's, I think, the only the problem that he has. It's sort of now 
taken as a given that he's going to score lots of goals and somehow he doesn't really capture the, the imagination as much as perhaps Henri has or even in more recent times uh, Harry Kane being being English and perhaps being slightly more, I don't know, statuesque. I mean, Aguero is a guy that sort of hides almost in the shadows and then just what, pops up. What, that haircut? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, more in a tactical sense. Right. I mean, he's the guy that will just be at the end of a scintillating city move but maybe just tap it in from from five metres and you don't necessarily think oh what a striker you think oh what city what an amazing team um, but of course it does take tremendous amount of skill uh, and know-how and also um, you know physical ability to be in the right spot at the right time and I think you'll probably have to leave before people will truly appreciate him certainly at City I think they'll have a really hard time finding someone who fits the system so well and who's given so much to this City team over the last few years right do you think people don't appreciate how great Aguero is? Well, I think a few years ago there was talk uh, that he might not work in quite right the way for mm. the Guardiola system, which I think he I think he showed over the subsequent couple of years that he fits that system very, very well. Because I think there was a game, I think at Chelsea, when they beat Chelsea 1-0 and Jesus played, and they looked like, City looked like more of a team, and I kind of looked at it and thought, well, what's going to happen to Aguero now? But he's still there, scoring goals. He also doesn't talk, right. which I think is a problem. Mm. You know, I don't think he's ever given an interview in all those years well, in like front ever. of a, well I don't recall a single TV interview I don't even recall maybe, any quotes from him uh, really maybe I've missed them but uh, you'd expect somebody who's been around for so long to yeah. put a feature and a really I think people don't really know who he is and you know what kind of character he is that's why I think he's not as relatable as, as somebody like Ori for example has he got one of those kind of weird voices a bit like say Mike Tyson or David or Beckham Daniel Farke. or Daniel Farke or Daniel Farke I don't oh, know Farke's got I, I a wonderful voice hang on a minute no, do you like Daniel Farke's voice it's only weird in as much as it doesn't fit the face yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true okay I'll give you that you're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson Pereira acres of space here's Gray Billing slid in Goal line clearance, Pereira! Wolf relegation. Getting interesting. Watford climbing out of the bottom three. When Nigel Pearson took charge of this club five weeks ago, there were seven points adrift to safety. And now there they are, a, a point clear of Aston Villa. Uh, Dave Bushell says, is Nigel Pearson actually a good manager? He can't be a bad manager because he's done this great job at Leicester before. Mm. They were... F- up against relegation, the question is, I think, more to do with the people around him. There were some issues, I think, uh, at Leicester and some some off the pitch issues, if you remember, um, which Did, perhaps he could have handled a little bit differently. Right, the trip to Thailand in the summer. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so that probably won't be much of an issue at, at Watford, but you know, Watford, even last season, I think you you were looking at Watford and think they're such an organised team. They're so strong physically. They create always chances. Uh, they're really tough to play against. They You didn't expect them to be anywhere near the relegation battle. And I think if it hadn't been for what looks like sort of two managers who um, almost in back-to-back fashion just couldn't quite get on with the team anymore, we wouldn't have seen such a drastic fall in performances because the players are there. Uh, even today, when you felt you know two teams of similar standards in terms of points this season, Watford looked like so much more of a team. Um, they had much better organisation, they had much better individuals, they looked physically stronger. 
um, you didn't think that they'd be sort of fighting each other for similar places in in the table. You, you'd much rather see Watford as a team that could, you know, get to the to the first half of the table, maybe even put a pressure on the Europa League places as they did last season. So they they shouldn't have done so badly in in the first place. I think there is some certain fundamentals certainly with Watford that are there. For example, Dini, like this great bear of a leader on the pitch, who which and you're looking at Bournemouth team today, they didn't have anyone like that. And mm. maybe Francis was that leader back in the day, but he he's long gone. Um and I think one one thing with all these multiple managers, foreign managers, uh, which perhaps kind of was missed out the relationship with Dini. And I think maybe you have an English manager come in with like an English captain. Maybe there is a certain cultural synergy there that might not have been with someone like I don't know, Javi Gracia or someone, right. or someone like that. Eddie Howe's English. Where's his relationship with his team? Yeah, but the thing is, I think I think the thing with his team is that he doesn't have a figure such as Dini, who's been who's right. been there. At, like, at the, I mean, some of those players at Bournemouth have been there for many years, but they haven't been performing at such a high standard for those so years. So we were talking about this fixture on Thursday, and indeed everyone was, was about how important it was and potentially season-defining the, this and the next few games. And Eddie Howe was in invoking the the vitality crowd to show a little vitality and vitality the, crowd. Mm. Yeah, but basically, you know, the home fans to give him a bit of a push, and we were speaking to Michael Dunn. He was saying that he wants more aggression from the team, and the, but th- th- there was none of that. But he was saying it in a very non-aggressive way. That's true. <laughs> I mean, they were trying their best. I think were the they? first half it was fairly open. They mm. they played some decent football, but there is a certain sort of lightweightedness about them. But I think I think Eddie has got to take a little bit of responsibility. To be brutally honest, as well, the team he put out today, he had his best defender Nathan Ake. He put him at left back. He brought back. He's got Francis and Cook in the centre of centre back, and as Sasha was just saying, neither of those two have really, have really peaked. Their careers have peaked effectively, especially in the Premier League. You look in the midfield again. He's got you know Lerma and Gosling. Are they the, the right players to anchor? And he played two up front, and he's insisting on playing or Solanke just off Callum Wilson at a time when they need to dig in and they're trying to play the ball from the back when actually the options they've got a foot way further up the field. So tactically, a lot of the decisions he's making doesn't seem to make sense. They finished the game with Ryan. Fraser almost playing left back arguably the most creative player and I think Eddie Howe's you know there's I, I know he's he's done an excellent job but I, I'm, not, I'm not saying he should go or anything like that. I'm just saying it isn't working and it needs almost like an independent set of eyes on that team just going no this isn't working and this isn't working and be it a strong captain or someone in the back room or someone just needs to just to say look no this isn't this isn't working at the moment this is why we're losing one shot on target for the Cherries and that was in the ninth minute next weekend they're away to Norwich I just, I just want to say like another thing about Watford. Mm. Um, they scored nine goals in those first you know, 15 games before um, Pearson took over. They've now scored 11 in the last seven. They've learned to defend four clean sheets. That's more than they kept earlier in the season. It's just curious how some managers can come in and suddenly everyone understands what they're supposed to be doing. And um, like looking at this, they certainly have the momentum to pull away uh, from the relegation zone. I think they've left it for the first time this season. And certainly look, look at the other clubs just falling down around them. I, I mean, they look like a good shot for staying up now. By contrast, are Bournemouth done for, Sash? I don't want to praise Matt Davis-Adams here, but I think he's, he has <laughs> think been he, right on this. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see. Still just under half a season to go. Let's have a quick word then on what happened at the King Power on Saturday. Southampton roundly trounced 9-0 in a record-equaling result back in October when Leicester came to visit. This time emerging 2-1 winners as uh, Ruff Hasenhuttle continues his remarkable turnaround. Uh, Gautam Kardhakar wants to know how. How how good has Hasenhuttle's work been at Southampton, says Gautam, considering the poor investment change of ownership and the squad profile? What are the key reasons for his success? 
Well, I think first of all, as you saw last year when he came in, he's he's a good manager. He knows how to energize a team. He knows how to tactically and both in motivational terms, because these things go together when you play such an aggressive uh, running system to get the team sharp, to get them in the mood, and they, they know what they're doing. It's not just running and pressing for pressing sake, but doing it in a very organized, collective way, looking for triggers, looking for pressing victims, trying to guide the balls into certain areas for the opposition, and then um, sort of narrow down options and all these kind of things. And they've just become a very effective unit again. They, they're basically back to where they were last year, and it's almost more difficult to explain why things like the 9-0, why things like the you know, some really poor performances earlier and happened because they're actually there the exception to what has been a pretty strong body of work. But they're playing differently now, no? They're showing more energy, more at- aggression? No, they play like that when he came in and when he changed mm-hmm. the system completely um, and, and it bore immediate uh, dividends and that's how they stayed up. And uh, I think everyone was expecting for them to make the next step up to to consolidate and that has not happened and might not happen this year. Um, in fact, they've been fighting against relegation, but I think slowly but surely you're seeing that there is enough underlying know-how there and, and quality, even though I wouldn't say there's an abundance of quality in this side, to to be safe. Right. And then I think this is um, why the question is, is a good one, because then I think Southampton have to go back to the spot where they become the first port of call for really talented players who then are so good that two, three years later they move on and become superstars. Because without these sort of signings, uh, to be ahead of the curve and to be really smart in the transfer market, they will struggle. Um, As much as the tactical side and the motivational side is being improved, you'll you'll need that bit of quality, which right now in individual terms is quite thin. I did ask ask Carl Anker, friend Mm -hmm. of the show, Athletics, Southampton correspondent, that exact same question as you pretty much asked James, which was how how has this happened? Right. And he, he says, look, it's down to the pressing, it's down to the fact that they've they've basically run more than any other team since November. Mm. And think about if you think about it, they must have hit rock bottom. And he must yeah, he's gone into that change room. With the nine nil. Yeah. And he's just gone into that change room and just said, This is what we're gonna have to do to get out of this. Yeah, you know, we're not going to bring in any new players. We're not going to change anything. We know this works. We just need to go back to this. Right. As, as Raf was saying, because it worked last season. Of course, it helps when you have a journeyman striker who suddenly starts acting like Sergio Aguero. I mean, he's been... Danny Ings has been absolutely phenomenal. Hasn't he? 14 goals this season. His shooting accuracy is nearly at 50%, which is fantastic. He's only missed, I think, four big chances all season and three of them hit the woodwork, which is... that's. I mean, that is... Absolutely sensational. If he's not in the England squad in March, oh, right. something's gone ask, wrong. Yeah, it, it's, is that the next step, do you think? Oh, completely. He has to be, especially with Kane gone. Um, Abraham will be there and there will be one other. But Rashford, I think, they won't play as a centre-forward anymore. So that, it just naturally makes sense for Danny Ings to be in the next England squad. He's played in all eight of Southampton's wins. And he's also blocked 11 shots this season as well. He puts the work in down the other end as well. He's not just running through and scoring all the goals. He's been absolutely fantastic. He has been brilliant and... You know, I feel a bit sorry for the likes of Shea Adams, who was supposed to come on and burst onto the scene. But look, when you've got someone that hot, just just roll with it. Just, right. just keep playing. I mean, I think Inks on his own could have scored about six, which I found quite extraordinary given they lost 9-0 in the first game. They could have had, realistically, six to eight goals. Um, but the way that Leicester have crumbled without Ndidi, mm. I'm just finding it really disappointing. Like, suddenly, no, the defence is completely unprotected. Sayunchu, like, looks like he's completely all over the place without Ndidi in front of him. They haven't really got anyone else uh, to sit there. 
and suddenly the back line doesn't really know what the out ball is and they've lost all the angles they get closed down so easily um, as, as you could see against Southampton which basically just smartly cut out the obvious ball and then Le- Leicester didn't really know what to do and I just found extraordinary how, how they folded it should have been way more than 2-1 it was exactly the same against Norwich wasn't it in, um, in December you know, again, Sorensen looked exposed and relies on his pace and his timing to to basically recover from the mistakes he was making. And at the game on Saturday, he wasn't able to do that as much because Ings is a much better striker. Saints moving to eight points clear of the bottom three now. Burnley and Brighton are two points above the relegation zone. They got beat by Chelsea and Everton, respectively. That was Burnley's fourth defeat in a row. West Ham lost at Bramall Lane. A uh, lot of talk about. Declan Rice's handball in the build-up to Snodgrass's late equaliser, which saw that uh, chalked off. Duncan Alexander says, seems West Ham, the club who were the backbone of the England 1966 team, don't like to check whether goals were legal. It's a bit harsh. <laughs> Was the bigger issue here for West Ham the fact that Fabianski's gone out injured again? Yeah, it's a big it's a big problem. It's a really big problem. I and mean, we saw throughout this first half of the season just how much they miss him. And uh, I think everyone expected this this big bounce, this big sort of return to yeah to better results and and a bit more security at the back. And now I don't know how bad it is, but it's certainly not what they wanted at this juncture where they're still, I think, battling, right, and not to get uh, sucked in. The club had agreed a deal to sign Darren Randolph as well, hadn't they, from Middlesbrough? And then he's picked up an injury as well. So now they're, now they're back to the drawing board trying to find another goalkeeper by the weekend, effectively. Right. By the weekend. Well that's, that's what, well, that's what they'd like to do. Now, whether they will or not, it's something completely different. But right. They can't rely on the other two guys. Just error-prone every game. They cannot go ahead with the two keepers they have fit. Right. One point from the drop. And coming up next weekend, quickly checks the fixtures. They are at home to Everton. Interesting. Meantime, Anton, you went to Molyneux on Saturday to see Wolves Newcastle as Newcastle went five points clear of the bottom three. They did, and they it was a, it was a really interesting performance from Newcastle because they started so brightly um, with Almiron creating havoc and creating space. Jolinton playing as a sort of wide target man, effectively to take on the the weak um, weak defender in uh, Roman size for for Wolves, and that created space for Gale and Almiron to run into. And it worked for the goal. That's what led to the goal. Almost his energy and, and uh, positioning was fantastic throughout the opening of the game. Then they picked up two injuries. They lost Dummett and they lost uh, Dwight Gale, both to hamstring injuries. Right. And Joe Linton picked up a groin strain as well, but he carried on. So how many injuries have they got now? So it's up to 15 at the moment. Now, speaking to Steve Rees after the game, he said he genuinely doesn't know what side he's going to put out for Rochdale in midweek, never mind the, the game the following weekend as well. Um, it's the worst injury crisis he's seen in 40 years, he says. That is, that's what he said, yeah. So mm. it's going to be fascinating. So basically after half-time, Steve Bruce just defended and some excellent time-wasting S-housery to, to just, just to frustrate. And, and Wolves can break them down. And Wolves have got, some, I think, some big problems here because they didn't change their tactics. Right. They made one substitution throughout the whole game. Uh-huh. And that was a left-wing back replacing a left-winger. So Nuno clearly doesn't have any faith in the in the attacking options he has on the bench. Wolves are trying to to bring in reinforcements, but actually they've lost two in Patrick Catroni and Jesus Vallejo so far. So they've got two fewer players. This is their 37th game of the season. Right. So it's going to be interesting to see what Wolves do this this um, this window, as well as Newcastle, because Steve Bruce says he isn't going to necessarily be that active, although they want Adam Ola-Lukman. Do they? Okay. That's that's their main target at the Wol- moment. Wolves might have fared better in this game had it not been for the antics of Dubravka. He was superb. Two fantastic point-blank saves, from one from Jimenez and one from Pedro Neto. 
Um, and he obviously he's made the most the highest number of saves in the Premier League this season, and he saved them again. Although saying that, I mean, Wolves should have created more chances. They dominated, and right. they they couldn't. There was a real lack of creativity. Newcastle did a number on Adama Traore, effectively got Almiron's pace tracking back on him, and then Kieran Clark just coming across was fantastic, uh-huh. and he couldn't he couldn't break through, and he looked looked a little tired, which is staggering for one of the fittest players in the Premier League. Okay, also want to talk about Almiron a bit more. Because he's now scored in back-to-back uh, fixtures. Him and Traore, for me, are the most improved players in the Premier League this season. Yes, everyone always points to the goals and assist stats for Almiron. But he, if he was in a, a better team, he would be playing his more natural game. Right. He tracks back so much. He creates Is the same space. true for Jesse Lingard if he were to go to a better team? <laughs> um, no comment. Um, but I just, I just, I just think he's massively underrated. He was, he is integral to Newcastle having any hope of staying in the Premier League this right. season, because especially when he plays down that left flank, him and Yetro Willems, the energy they have going forward. But actually, that because they can get back and cover as well, that that is vital for for Newcastle. And I'm, I'm, I'm nothing but impressed with him. And Steve Bruce said, you know, he's lit up the place since he arrived, and he absolutely adores him. And you can see that relationship working well between them as well. Brilliant. Wolves, as you mentioned, on their 37th game of the season and their 38th is only about 20, well, 36 hours away because they're, they're off to no, a bit more than that, actually, because they're playing on Wednesday. Wednesday in their third round FA Cup replay against Man United. Do you fancy Wolves' chances against Man United? I think it's great that this replay is there from Liverpool's point of view because they're the next two opponents in the Premier League. So I'm just hoping for extra time and penalties. Sash. What about Man United? They're coming off a mighty 4-0 thumping of, uh, admittedly, the bottom team in the division. But still, those are steps forwards to borrow the you know Man United current speak. Yes. Well, I mean, after the um, disaster against City in the League Cup, I think they needed um, that kind of performance and that kind of result. And Norwich were probably a very amenable uh, opponent to play against. Especially with that Pukki as well. Yeah, but still, I mean, United have struggled against smaller sides and have struggled to break them down so it's good to see especially Rashford become such an important player and such a reliable player I think um, you know he's coming to the age I think at 22 where um, if you're a centre forward or a wide centre forward however you want to classify him um, I think we're seeing just more maturity in his decision making um, knows when to go knows when to come deep knows when to hold the ball up he just makes a lot of things right and you know, because United are where they are in terms of the uh, the overall squad. It's almost as if this team is being built around him, and um, I think he he looks worthy of of that position. Um, you know, he is one of the few guys that you feel you know United going forward. If we're ever going to go back to being a dominant force and competitive team in in the Premier League, let alone uh, the Champions League, you need to build on the foundations that the likes of Rashford provide for you. So. I think in that sense, it was a big game um, for him and maybe for Socha as well because it was just enough to suggest that maybe things are slowly but surely moving in the right direction again. Okay. Curiously, all of Man United's last 15 goals in the Premier League have been scored by the Rashford, Martial or Greenwood. That's that's who does the scoring. I was just going to say, um, did anyone else find Socha's comments after the game about City playing full-strength team in the semi-final of <laughs> the League Cup really odd? They were a bit strange when you look at who City actually played. But that's just general. Just even if they did play, a str- I mean, what, right. I don't quite understand because like it was for, a semi-final of a League Cup. Yeah, it's, yeah, and it's like it's United manager talking about the oh yeah they're treating a series. I mean, I don't know. It just didn't make any sense. Why right. would you say that? 
Well, I think he was suggesting that he'd been criticised too much for losing against a very good City side. I also enjoyed the bit where he started to tell everyone that there's no I in Manchester. No, oh, actually, there is. <laughs> there's no I in this team. Maybe in medieval times there was no I. Right. And what is the medieval angle? I, I have no idea, but that's the line he put out when he was talking about Van Persie and refused to get really drawn in and say, well... We're not in. I'm not in medieval times. That's why I won't say anything any, anymore. So, okay, yeah, bit puzzling. My favourite Sorcherism though is the game in the Europa League. I can't forget. I forget now who it was. Where he said, "Well, we've really improved. If this game would have happened two, three weeks ago, we would have been three 0 down after an hour." <laughs> right, but you know, yeah. steps forward. Yeah, there we go. Uh, are they taking steps to bring in Bruno Fernandes, Anton? I Man United. I think Sporting would love them to. I oh. think that's the difference. Now Sporting actually want to sell. Now they've got his contract situation sorted. Um, in United, are Armin Gnaring basically? He's available for sixty million pounds. United scouted him in the summer. Decided that the fee that Sporting wanted, which was more than that, was too much. And now they're deciding whether that's a, a fair fee. Now um, at the moment, they're not making any moves to sign him. They're still scouting him, but. There's still no moves to sign him as of yet. Okay. What would a Bruno Fernandes do for them? Well, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you look at the goals and the assists, he's consistently churning out for, for sporting. Um, and there's always that, oh, but can he do it in, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a bigger league? Well, this is a guy that's been in Serie A. You know, he's, he's, it's not as though he's, he has no idea what it's like to play in, in a different league. He's a big part of the Portugal team. I think it's just, for me, it's, it's, it's whether... Manchester United want to spend that much money on him. I think that's genuinely think that's the thing, which is odd for Manchester United because usually money isn't really an issue. But that seems to be the one thing. There's clearly interest. They're clear, they're clear, he's clearly on their radar, but for some reason, it's the fee that seems to be putting them off. Any other transfer talk we should know about? Uh, Olivier Giroud. Looks as though he's done, obviously, with a, with Chelsea. Inter Milan look, look to be close to signing him. Uh, originally, there was a, about £4 million um, discrepancy between how much Chelsea wanted for him and how much Inter were willing to pay. Mm-hmm. But talks are continuing and it looks like that will get done. Um, other than that, it's really quiet. Pepe Reina was at Villa Park on Sunday. Uh, so obviously that, that deal will go through as soon as Asmir Begovic, who is in Milan, completes his move to AC Milan right. uh, to be the backup for Donnarumma. Um, other than that... I mean, there's lots of clubs trying to do business. I know Wolves want to bring in at least three players, and at the moment that just isn't happening. I've turned down by a couple, and the fees they're being quoted are, are putting them off. Newcastle, has said, want to bring in Adamola Luckman. That's another big one. And um, there is interest from Tottenham in Piontek from AC Milan. But at the moment, again, it's Tottenham. It may take a while. I see. All right. Uh, Crystal Palace took on Arsenal, and you were there, Sash. Yeah, I was. Saturday lunchtime, this was. The word on Arsenal is that performances are more important than results right now. So how was how would you judge this performance? First half good, second half bad. And was that them doing an Arsenal or were there other circumstances like the red card? And oh, I, th- I thought the first half was actually quite dull, but I thought there was a good measure of control about what Arsenal were doing. They scored a lovely goal, opened up the defence, good movement from Lacazette to let in Aubameyang. And uh, after they looked quite comfortable. And then there was a weird moment where they didn't give the ball back or something and the whole crowd just went, oh... And Palace actually managed an attack. Palace managed the shot and target in the 40th minute. They didn't really look like it's going to be going anywhere. And then Torreira apparently picked up an injury, was subbed mm. at half time. And I think that caused a little bit of commotion uh, in their midfield. So the goal, when it actually arrived, I think 
they kind of left it for each other. Koyata and Yiptin. I think Koyata is actually really underrated. Um, like does a lot of things really well. Um, and then once Palace were one-one, they had the game on their hands. But again, it wasn't really going anywhere until Aubameyang nearly broke someone's ankle. Mm. Um, and where, where we were sitting in the stand, like you couldn't really see because it looked like a nothing challenge on the halfway line. And then we finally got the replays up, and it's, everyone around us just winced. I mean, yeah. it's like he, I think he was lucky not to break his ankle there, and likely probably ligament damage. Um, yes, Aubameyang should be banned, and yes, this is what VAR is good for. What I'm surprised about is why did the linesman not pick it up? I think I can see the referee. Right. He's probably, his line of sight is partially obstructed, so he can't really see how bad it is, but the linesman should be able to see that. Right. It was at this game that a banner was held up. I'm not sure, was it anywhere near uh, you? It was, uh, it was in Holmesdale. I didn't see it. I saw, I saw the, um, uh, sort of the photo. Killing adapted. the passion, killing the atmosphere, killing the game. End of our... The Crystal Palace supporters making their feelings known, as indeed Declan Rice had done on behalf of Premier League players everywhere uh, the, the previous evening. Uh, Rafa, I know we had a lot, it was, you, you had a, a lengthy chat about VAR and uh, its merits or otherwise uh, last time you were in. I mean, we, we don't need to go through that again. But Beyond the thing saying is, that it is the kind of the prenuptial agreement in the romance of football, the condom in the. Do you know what I mean? I, I do. Yeah. Uh, it's the anyway. bar- the barrier to fun. Is that it what you're saying? It kind of is. You know, it's the it's the conscious act that that that, <laughs> that kills the magic of the the, the spontaneity. I think it's yeah. what happens when someone looks too much into something. Yeah. And if people, I I, th- I listened to your um to what you had to say about VAR the other week, and I. And I've thought this for a while. I think with VAR, there's just too much democracy. There's too many people allowed too this many from opinions. A exactly. I mean, I know this, this, this obviously sounds really apt, but I think there are situations like, I don't know, if you leave a pub with your mates at 9 p.m. Yeah. on a Friday night and everybody wants to go to a different location and you stand in the street arguing for an hour. I think this is a similar type of situation. Too many people have well, too many voices. It's an interesting analogy and one that I've not heard before. <laughs> well, it's actually you know, similar to what happens whenever I go for friends, which is you leave one pub and no right. one knows where they I mean, want to go it, next. But they all want to go somewhere. But right. they all want to go somewhere. So they all have opinions. That, how does that mirror what's going on with VAR? Because everyone has opinions and I think everyone is trying to influence the way it's used in the, for their own, for own needs. Anyway. Hmm? Everyone, uh, I, I think it's, it's, I think it comes down to how philosophically you interpret the, the motives for playing football. Uh, I don't think that it actually matters who wins and who loses per se. It, it won't change the world. If football was played behind closed doors, it wouldn't be. You know, nobody would. There's no reason for teams to play each other unless people are watching. Ergo, the whole point of football is to entertain the people who are watching. Yes, but I don't. And think so. if you have VAR, you don't entertain the people who are watching. So people who are watching are more important than the results, and therefore VAR shouldn't happen. I think if there is a given yeah. that people can't complain about, they will eventually get used to it. I know. That's basically if people. So you you should ban people disagreeing <laughs> with VAR. That's the solution. <laughs> they should be reeducated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Paddy Power. Let's get some odds now from producer Ben, who's been speaking to Lee Price. Good evening, Jimbo. Good morning, listeners. And hello, Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, let's look ahead to the third round replays in the FA Cup. United versus Wolves stunk the place out. What's going to happen here? There has to be a winner. Well, I'll tell you who the winner is, Ben. Football. Getting to enjoy this classic encounter all over again. United, for reasons unclear if you've actually watched football this season, are odds-on favourites to win this game at 4-6. And I think Wolves, as you can probably tell from my snarkiness there, look like value at 7-2. to two. Another nil-nil, God forbid, is 9-1. to one. Over to the northeast end, and it's Newcastle versus Rochdale. I fancy Rochdale, what say you? <laughs> That's exactly the kind of eternal optimist that you are, my little Miss Sunshine. If you do fancy a bit of narrative, Rochdale are 17-2 to, to win this game. 
but that could move quite quickly when the team sheets come in. This is a tough one for Steve Bruce. On the one hand, his squad is absolutely knackered and can do the rest. On the other, going deep in the cup is a great PR exercise. He's hardly Mr. Popular at Newcastle at the minute. And the home game against Oxford must be tempting. That's probably why they're 1-4 to four to win this one. And finally, Watford have to go back to Tranmere, who came back from 3-0 down to draw 3-3 at Vicarage Road. What's going to happen here, please? Hmm, goals, goals, goals. Six in the first leg, it's 9-1. to These two repeat that trick in the replay. And odds on, there's at least three in this fixture. And this is the one where I'm catching a whiff of a cup set. Sorry, Tranmere, if I've just jinxed you, but Watford will want to focus on Premier League survival, and a tie against United or Wolves will not appeal to them necessarily. The traders at Paddy Power quite rightly disagree with me entirely and make the Hornets 4-9 to to win this. Tranmere 5-1. to You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. The Week Ahead listener. Thank you for being with us this morning. We're not quite done yet. Uh, we've got Tony Scottish Football Show. That's back first thing on a Tuesday. Uh, that's a, a new time slot for the Tony Scottish Football Show for 2020. Also out at the crack of dawn on Tuesday is the Europod, Rafa, which makes its return. We're going to be hearing all about your road trip all around the sunny roads of Spain. Andalusia. Andalusia, sorry. Andalusia. Yeah, Andalusia. nice. And uh, you went there to meet all the all the Bundesliga in Spain Literally right now. Literally all the Bundesliga, with the exception of Bayern, who went to Doha. I've never seen you smile mm. harder than when you said Andalusia. <laughs> you really enjoyed that. It's, yeah, it's, it's tricky. Here's a quick question from Alex, who says, what's the latest on Timo Werner? Is he staying put in January? Yes. Okay. Uh, we'll be discussing, anyway, all those things. We'll be talking about Spain and some of the things they've been up to, all the French League action, also Serie A which saw Zlatan Ibrahimovic make his first start for Milan and score his first goal since his return. He's now scored in four different decades. That's extraordinary, isn't it? How many statues of him are still standing there? Well, none. None. His first professional goal, since you didn't ask, was for Malmo against Vastra Florunda on October the 30th, 1999. I've just made it. Just made it. Uh, loads of stuff to say about Serie because, of course, massive weekend with Inter taking on Atalanta. Uh, Napoli up against Lazio and the big Roma-Juve game on Sunday. But we'll catch up on all of that in Tuesday morning's show. On Wednesday, there'll be a brand new Golazzo. Yeah, a brand new Golazzo uh, celebrating Italy's all-time top scorer, Gigi Riva. Sasha, three wins out of four for Carlo Ancelotti in the Premier League. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I think it would take a lot more for, I think, for Evertonians to recover from the embarrassment of last week. Um I don't think they were particularly convincing against Brighton, uh, given Brighton are absolutely terrible on the road, not not a particularly good team. One, I think, story that um, I'd like to highlight about this game was Matt Ryan said he'll donate uh, $500 for every save in the Premier League this weekend uh, towards the Wires Wildlife Rescue uh, to help animals uh, obviously suffering from wildfires in Australia. Absolutely. Five goals, by the way, in the last nine Premier League matches for Richarlison. That was quite a special one, was it not? Yeah, it was a lovely finish. Hmm. It was a lovely turn and finish. Um, I'm pretty sure Sasha just brought this up so we could bury Everton then. It just felt like, wasn't it? But you mentioned something nice about Matt Ryan, so that was lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, um, I think uh, in terms of Bryson, I think the next four games for them define what type of season they have. Ooh. They've got Villa at home, mm-hmm. Bournemouth away, West Ham away and Watford at home. Wow. And if they don't get what, eight, nine, ten points from those games, you think, OK, fine, they're going to be, they're potentially going to fall down the table and struggle again. If they do well, then they will be solidly mid-table and they can look to brighter things. 
They're currently two points worse off than they were at this stage last season under Chris Hooton. Ah, but then they only won three out of 23, didn't they, towards the end of the season. Right. So. And also, I don't know who the, what their kind of Uncle Fred uh, table would be. I don't, what is an Uncle Fred table? Well, like for like... Yeah, it's ah. when you play... Yeah. Uh, you, you also, you felt that I glossed unfairly over Chelsea's win 3-0 against Burnley. Their first win in four matches at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea and Burnley's fourth defeat in a row. Four defeats in a row, seven defeats in eight. They're in trouble. They are. They are in trouble. And I think the whole ethos behind Burnley for the last few seasons has been: if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it's broken, and now they need to look at ways to potentially either bring in a couple more players, cut more creative players. You know, they brought in Jay Rodriguez and Eric Peters in the summer that was the only summer recruitment and you're just thinking that you need more than that to progress as a team you need where's the spark McNeil has been linked with other clubs as well and Sean Dyche hasn't ruled out him leaving at some point so I think they've got some really I think January could be really big for Burnley if they don't invest in a couple of certainly a creative awesome pace Aaron Lennon's still playing on the wing for them I mean in 2020 and also in this game they were sort of in the game and then they just gave Chelsea two goals where they two horrific mistakes basically um and yeah, as you're saying, they, just, they are one of those teams which make me think that Watford would be staying up because they're sliding down so quickly. It was 4-2, wasn't it, back up at Turf Moor with the hat-trick from Christian Pulisic. What's happened to him? Where's he disappeared? He's off injured. injured. Oh, well, that explains and it. And Kante got injured before the game as well. So Kante did oh, play. did he? Yeah. Kante out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got hurt in training. Mm. Well, some big matches coming up next weekend by the sound of it, eh, Anton? And some pretty huge fixtures midweek too with the FA Cup. Third round replays. Exactly. Best of luck to all involved there. Thanks. On Thursday, we'll be back to review all of that drama. For now, Anton, thank you so much for coming in. Hope your back gets better. Thank you very much. Careful with that crazy yoga stuff. Yeah, I'll try. Rafa, lovely to see you looking so tanned and resplendent. Thank you, James. I'll see you again for Tuesday's big Euro show. Woof. Sasha, thank you for being with us. After your busy weekend of football, can't wait to see you again. Listener, have yourself a great time. Loads of opportunities to join us again throughout the week. And uh, do hope you enjoy yourself in the meantime. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Join Ruby Walsh, Paddy Power, Tom Nugent and a whole host of great guests each week on Paddy Power's new racing podcast, From the Horse's Mouth. Tune in for analysis, interviews and a bit of crack. Ruby is the expert, Tom holds it together and Paddy, well, Paddy's funding the whole thing so he insisted that he gets to be involved. (laughs) The first episode is available to download now. Muddy News Media.